Boston University School of Law, recognized for excellence in legal education since 1872. It's the faculty. It's the students. It's the curriculum. It's the inspiration. Preparing students for the real-world practice of law today. Join host Dan Ray, BU Law alum and WBC 1030 radio host in Boston for this edition of the BU Law Podcast. Well, welcome to the Boston University Law School podcast. I'm your host, Dan Ray. I'm also a proud graduate of Boston University Law School, class of 1974, member of the bar here in Massachusetts, and a longtime broadcast journalist in Boston, both on WBZ-TV and now WBZ-Radio here in Boston as a journalist. I've covered countless legal cases in local, state, and federal courtrooms. I also currently host my own uh, talk show. It's called Nightside, Monday through Friday on WBZ Radio 1030. If you're listening anywhere in the country, you can you can listen to it on WBZ.com on the Internet. And oftentimes we deal with legal issues. But today, uh, here on the BU podcast, uh, my guest uh, is an old friend, uh, uh, old professor, I should say, a professor of many years. Let me put it like that. <laughs> Stanley Z. Fisher has been a professor yeah. of law at Boston University School of Law for 42 years. Actually, predates my time there. But more importantly, for the purposes of our conversation today, Professor Fisher is a founding member and a trustee of the New England Innocence Project. Professor Fisher teaches courses in criminal procedure, criminal law, and wrongful convictions. He has studied and written articles on faulty eyewitness identification procedures, as well as police and prosecution suppression of exculpatory evidence. In, in 2008, the Massachusetts Law Review published his study of eyewitness identification ro- reform here in Massachusetts, revealing some very interesting findings, some of which we're going to talk about today. And welcome to the uh, BU Broadcast, uh, Professor Fisher. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Uh, first, l- tell us a little bit about the um, New England chapter of the Innocence Project. It is modeled after the Innocence Project that I think everyone knows out of New York City, which was founded by Barry Sheck and Peter Neufeld at the Cardoza School of Law back in 1992. But of course, the one big difference, we always feel things are better in Boston and it's being run uh, in conjunction with a law firm here in Boston. Yes. Um, uh, the, uh, actually, there are two big differences. Um, uh, the first you mentioned uh, what happened in the early uh, in the 1990s is that uh, the Cardozo project was the only one in the country uh, to which prisoners uh, seeking exoneration by DNA from uh, all over the country were writing uh, letters asking for help. And by around the year 2000, uh, I understand that uh, the Innocence Project in New York had about 5,000 unopened letters. From prisoners, uh, they didn't have the, you know, the the manpower, woman power, from students to go through these cases. So they invited and urged uh, law schools uh, in all over the country to open up innocence projects for their regions and states. Uh, so in 2000, uh, in Boston, a group of us uh, uh, law school professors and defense attorneys formed the New England Innocence Project. And we're very lucky that the law firm, a private law firm, uh, Testa Hurwitz, uh, which uh, is now uh, not, it doesn't exist, but it's now the law firm of Goodwin Proctor, uh, volunteered to administer the project. But we all work in close collaboration with the defense bar and the area law school. So the first difference is that we're run by a law firm, administered by a law firm, not a uh, law school, but the second big difference is that uh, the Cardozo project has always 
restricted itself to cases where there could be exoneration by DNA evidence. Um, and uh, those cases have sort of been running out as police in more current cases use DNA in investigation. So uh, like most innocence projects in the country, the New England Innocence Project just last year expanded our mission. So we now will accept cases of prisoners um, who, uh, who we think could establish a strong likelihood that the prisoner's innocent either by scientific testing or by other investigative methods. Well, um, it's an area that I've had some experience with. We'll talk about that later. According to the um, to the project's website, the first exoneration of a wrongfully convicted and imprisoned person using post-conviction DNA testing occurred back in 1989. Now, as of July 23rd of this year, 255 innocent people in 34 states have been released from prison and nine DNA exonerations here in Massachusetts alone since 1997, and also three in the neighboring state of Connecticut. The technology, I assume, is only getting better, and I'm hoping that the application of that technology is also only getting better. Uh, there, uh, I'm, I'm no expert on uh, the scientific side, but I am aware, uh, and we all know that the technology of DNA has become amazingly better. Um, it used to be that in order to do a DNA analysis uh, on a crime scene uh, or a victim, the investigators would need a, a, a blood stain or a semen stain that was uh, the size of a quarter. I'm, I'm quoting here from an article on Scientific American. Uh, and gradually over the 90s, that amount fell to the size of a dime and even smaller. But there's something new now, for example, called touch DNA, so you don't have to see anything. Uh, it doesn't require blood or semen. Uh, it only requires, and again, I'm quoting here, it only requires seven or eight cells from the outermost layer of a skin. Uh, so if somebody just touches a piece of clothing with their skin, uh, investigators may be able to get uh, uh, cellular DNA from uh, that uh, biological evidence and use it to... Uh, analyze, the, uh, uh, find, identify the DNA profile of the perpetrator. So that and a number of other advances have made it much more available and discriminating. How, um, how do, ga- do cases actually get to the Innocence Project? I, as a uh, television reporter, and I'll mention this a little bit later on, was involved in the exoneration of uh, four men. They were not uh, DNA cases. They were uh, intentional, wrongful, uh, willful uh, c- convictions by the F- by the FBI through a um, uh, an informant who they permitted to pur- pur- perjure himself on the stands uh, on the witness stand. I get lots of letters uh, from uh, inmates. I assume, as you mentioned, um, there's the Innocence Project uh, here in uh, in New England also must get um, a lot of letters. How do you separate? I don't want to say the wheat from the chaff, but how do you separate the cases that you will act actively pursue and those that, frankly, are not going to meet whatever threshold you have? Yeah, well, we we have a a process that goes through a number of states. Basically, a prisoner uh, who claims that he's actually innocent and that there's some new evidence that could establish his innocence, uh, will submit an application to the Innocence Project asking for legal assistance, uh, which is ultimately, if they're successful, 
what we provide, and they fill out a complete questionnaire and uh, describing everything that happened, all the evidence in the case, uh, who the lawyers were, and so forth. Um, and then there's an initial screening at the Innocence Project, uh, which is done by uh, law students and paralegals, uh, just to see whether uh, the application seems to fit within our mission. Are these prisoners in New England? Are they actually claiming actual innocence? And so forth. Um, if the case passes that initial screening, then the case files are put together. We get the trial transcripts, the motions. Uh, we get files from the attorneys, uh, who, the defense attorneys in the case, with the consent of the prisoner. Uh, we get all the motions. We get the opinions. And those case files are, sent, uh, are, are assigned to law students in various New England law schools uh, that are participating, like BU. Uh, and those law students may take anywhere from six months to a year to thoroughly analyze. They read through the trial transcripts, read through everything. They may speak to the attorneys. They're looking for scientific evidence. Uh, and they're under the supervision of a law school professor as well as an attorney at Goodwin Proctor who's working with the Innocence Project. So after that thorough investigation, they write a a very substantial memorandum uh, summarizing the case and uh, making their uh, recommendations as to whether, in fact, this case does show a strong likelihood uh, if legal counsel were uh, obtained to uh, establish a strong likelihood of actual innocence. And that those memoranda are considered by a committee uh, at the Innocence Project, I stood on that committee along with uh, probably eight or ten other people, and we read all of the student uh, memoranda, and we ask questions, and we uh, will ultimately decide uh, whether to accept the case or reject the case. I should say that probably you know 90% or 95% of those cases are rejected. It may not be the, it may be the person's innocent. Uh, but there just may, may be no way that uh, we can see to find any new evidence that's going to satisfy a court to avoid the conviction and get a new trial. If we do accept the case, uh, we recruit a pro bono attorney from the defense bar, um, from, any, from the appropriate New England state usually. Uh, it might be someone from Goodwin Proctor, maybe someone from Rhode Island or anywhere, uh, these are very skillful attorneys who are um, volunteers, and they will then start the very long and difficult process of trying to uh, do whatever is necessary to uh, continue the investigation, gather the proof, and go to court and try to litigate uh, the prisoner's innocence. Now, when, when you use the phrase actual innocence, again, the lawyers who are listening uh, to this podcast will understand exactly what we're talking about. But I think the public uh, really doesn't understand oftentimes the distinction when a jury comes back with a conviction, the jury doesn't come back. Uh, it'll come back either guilty or not guilty, doesn't come back guilty or innocent. Uh, so that gives us, I think, uh, as a public as a whole, sort of a false hope that, well, 
in order to be convicted, it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt, all the elements of the crime. And, and we know what that standard is. Clearly, sometimes the standard is either misapplied by a judge and jury or uh, or there's some evidence uh, which is not made available, exculpatory evidence. All sorts of uh, problems can arise. But one of the concerns that, and, and I tell my friends uh, in the non-legal field, is that in law school you learn uh, what the um, uh, the standard of conviction is. Uh, again, um you know, you're convicted of all the elements of crime beyond a reasonable doubt, but there really is no standard to prove your innocence. Once you're in jail, it is a very difficult, uh, especially difficult process to um, to reverse that. And one of the things that uh, that the the DNA um, Innocence Project at Cardoza dealt dealt a lot with, obviously DNA, uh, but there are other cases, uh, mis- mistaken identification, huge factor uh, when it comes to wrongful uh, convictions. And uh, your 2008 study of eyewitness identification reform here in Massachusetts highlights some very interesting findings with regards to police procedures. There's really no consistency. One of those that only a small number of police departments have written eyewitness identification procedures. What are some of the systemic weaknesses that that you found as you surveyed uh, the procedures used by various police departments on eyewitness identification, which may or may not impact uh, a crime that has a DNA component to it? Yeah, let me just back up a minute to just clarify. When we say actual innocence, we mean someone who's absolutely the wrong person. They were not involved in the crime. We got the wrong person. Uh, and so, I do, and I do understand yeah. that. I mean, there are other people who are are released from prison because of their constitutional rights uh, were in some way violated. We we know all all of, even the public knows if you don't get your Miranda warnings or if there's a search and seizure uh, that is not done uh, properly with with you know a, a previous uh, evidence can be suppressed. Uh, we are talking about cases where innocent people, actually innocent people, have been convicted for crimes they did not commit. Yeah. Uh, so. Um uh, of the 255 DNA exonerations, uh, and by the way, these DNA exonerations, as you've said, they've showed that we convicted the wrong person. There was someone else who did this. Um, and uh, um, in those cases, the police used the same investigation procedures and the trial courts used the same trial procedures that they use in all cases. So the value of the DNA cases, which really are a very small percentage of all cases, um, is that they teach us that there may be some existing procedures, like eyewitness identification procedures, but others as well, which are vulnerable to uh, resulting in the conviction of an innocent person. Uh, Of the 255 DNA exonerations, 75% of them involved mistaken eyewitness identification. So this is absolutely huge. Um, and the question is, you know, uh, how, what's wrong with the traditional, uh, traditional police eyewitness identification procedures and how could they be improved? Uh, the first question is why do so many people get convicted who are innocent uh, by uh, mistaken identification? And the first answer is that eyewitness identification testimony is very, very persuasive, especially if a witness is, sounds confident and says, I'm sure, you know, I looked him in the eye, that's the person, he raped me, he robbed me. Uh, that's very persuasive. But we also know it can be very unreliable, uh, and there are a number of reasons why. Now, in the first place, 
uh, an eyewitness's ability to recognize a, a stranger who's attacking him, whether they're seeing that person for a minute or two or even two or three hours, can be undermined by several things, by the fact that the victim is under stress, the fact they may be looking at a weapon pointed at their nose. Uh, if it's a cross-racial identification, we know from uh, experimental science that people uh, are more likely to make mistakes in cross-racial than intra-racial or ethnic um, identifications. Uh, secondly, the traditional police identification techniques we've learned can contaminate the memory of the, the victim's memory of the assailant. And once it's contaminated, it is uh, contaminated forever. And this happens in several ways in the traditional procedure. So uh, first, um, normally the police will have a collection of, of photographs in which the suspect uh, suspect's picture is uh, one of them. There may be six or seven uh, other photographs. And it can be that the composition of the photo array is suggestive and sort of points the witness to the suspect. For example, the witness, may, the, the suspect may be the only one there with a wearing a hat out of all seven, or uh, may it be the only one that has a mustache and the others don't. Um, secondly, uh, witnesses, when they're showed a photo array, they very frequently expect that the reason the police are showing them the pictures is that they found a suspect and the suspect's pictures in there. So they're looking for that suspect, and they want to be a good witness. Um, thirdly, there's this, traditionally, instead of showing, you know, you can either show these photos to the witness one at a time uh, or all together simultaneously. And traditionally, the police will spread out, you know, here are all eight photos. You look at them and see if there's someone there who you recognize. Uh, what happens if, if, the, if the real attacker is in one of those photos, witnesses are pretty good at picking that person out. But if the, if the real perpetrator is not there, the people are likely to pick out whichever face most resembles uh, the, uh, their memory of the suspect. Uh, and that often can be an innocent person. Um, so what they're doing is they're kind of eliminating all the pictures that don't match their memory of the perpetrator, uh, and they're picking the one who most resembles, and they say that's the person. Uh, now, there's a risk if the investigating police officer is the primary investigator in the case, and he knows who the suspect is, there's a, a risk that he will unconsciously influence the witness to pick out the suspect rather than some other sus, um, filler, another face in the, in the uh, lineup. He can do this by body language. Um, there, there are lots of ways, and this has been, again, proven scientifically by experiments. Uh, and once the witness picks out the suspect, then there's a problem of contamination of memory because often the police officer who knows he's picked out the, the suspect says, oh, yes, you picked out the one we thought is the guy. Now, the effect of that, we know, is to 
inflate the confidence of the witness. The witness says, ah, I got the right person because they've sure. gotten this confirming feedback. That makes them a very much more effective witness and persuasive witness because they're now saying, I'm sure. And they may be sure at that point than they were originally. Uh, let me ask just yeah. let me ask if I can just a couple of questions uh, quickly. We're, we're getting close to a break. Um, I, I, clearly, the defense lawyers want to make sure, uh, clearly because of their position, that uh, the, their client, if he or she is to be convicted, they're, they're been, they have been convicted uh, properly. We we understand that. Uh, at the same time, on the, the other side of the case, you have police departments, um, district attorneys, prosecutors, uh, and legislators. Do you feel that the uh, attitude of some of the folks on the prosecutorial side of the bar uh, that they're they're that those attitudes are improving in recent years, and they're becoming more willing to accept some of the reforms that you and others are proposing. Well, that's certainly true in uh, in most parts of Massachusetts and in much of the country. I think the uh, impact of DNA exonerations and all the uh, evidence of mistaken eyewitness identification has made a big impact. So certainly that's true. Uh, in, in the largest counties in Massachusetts. It's true in a number of states and police departments um, uh, and counties in the country. Unfortunately, it's not uniformly true. So unless there's legislation that says you all have to adopt the, the reforms, which we haven't discussed, but there are a number of reforms that people agree will make these identification practices more reliable, uh, there, unless there's legislation uh, or unless courts say we won't take this identification evidence unless you do certain things, uh, each police department is free to use whatever procedures it wants, the old ones or the new ones. Now, as, as I'm sure you know, Professor Fisher, uh, I, I spent a lot of time during my television career working on behalf of a fellow who was uh, intentionally, wrongfully and intentionally imprisoned uh, by the FBI. Now, this was a, a, a horrible case because this goes back to the 1960s. And this fellow, along with three other men, uh, were wrongfully convicted for a 1965 murder. The four of them spent about 109 years in prison. Uh, two were able to walk out after 33 and 30 years. Two others died while in prison. Um, the, 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 the person that I was interested in, his sentence was commuted in 1997 and then actual FBI documents proved, uh, his innocence in 2001. And there was a congressional investigation. And just about three years ago, federal judge Nancy Gertner awarded $101 million to the, to these men, uh, and their families. Uh, and, uh, I, you, as you know, uh, the award by Judge Gertner was upheld, uh, at the appeals court, uh, first circuit here in, in Massachusetts. And the Solicitor General at the time, Elena Kagan, I think one of one of her last decisions as Solicitor General was not to take the case on cert uh, to the Supreme Court. I know from my own experience, these cases are so difficult. Even a case like this, where there was where there was um, there was criminal activity by FBI agents, as far as I'm concerned. Um, have have you found that all of these cases, irrespective of the uh, the, the level of wrongdoing by the prosecution, whether it's a negligent case where the police officers were trying to do the right thing, but they just didn't do it properly, uh, all the way along up to the situation where FBI agents allow an informant to get on the witness stand knowingly and willfully perjure himself. Uh, none of these are easy. These are ex 
extremely difficult. Uh, of course, it's more difficult if the same district attorney is still in power uh, in office uh, as uh, who, whose office prosecuted and convicted that person. There is a strong political and psychological stake in protecting that conviction. Um, there are also just many obstacles. For example, you have the right to counsel before your conviction, you know, before that trial and appeal. But once uh, the, your appeal is gone, gone, you have no constitutional right to counsel. So most of these prisoners are acting on their own, pro se, and it's very difficult to get a lawyer or investigative resources. It's also very difficult, even if there is physical evidence, to, to find that evidence. It may have been destroyed. It may be lost. Uh, some jurisdictions uh, have not, or most jurisdictions haven't had laws that require this evidence to be preserved for a very long time. So it may be there's evidence out there that could get you free, but it can't be found or it's lost. Even if you find the evidence, um, the uh, you you don't have a prison doesn't just have access. Say, well, I'd like to test that evidence. Um, and uh, there are a lot of traditionally a lot of bars, and still in Massachusetts, there's no law that gives the prisoner a right to test that evidence for DNA. Uh, and some prosecutors may just fight it for years, fight access to it and say, no, we don't want you to test it. Yeah, a lot of the final. prosecutors, a lot of the prosecutors, it seems to me, are resistant. Not only the, the the original prosecutor in the case, but subsequent prosecutors. I don't think they like to see prosecutors or investigators, as I I use the phrase, their scrapbook rearranged. I mean, a lot of these people have put away a high profile case or a low profile low profile case, and they're they're not particularly interested in uh, in being helpful. I know that none of these are sure shots, uh, but some of them are real long shots. And what was the most unexpected exoneration that you have seen in, in your work. Uh, well, on, on that last point, just let just me say that I think there's some real concerns about reputation of the office and also civil liability. Uh, in right. Massachusetts, millions of dollars have been paid out not only by police departments and municipalities and insurance companies, but by police officers. So um, uh, there's a real concern about civil liability. Uh, the most unexpected exoneration that I'm aware of is the one of uh, uh, a police officer uh, in Rhode Island named Scott Hornoff, who was convicted of a murder um, and was sentenced to life for this murder uh, uh, after six years and basically very weak evidence. But basically, after six years, another man uh, who had been a boyfriend of the female murder victim, uh, apparently he found religion and he walked into the police into the office of the Rhode Island Attorney General and said he he was consumed with guilt over the fact that someone else was spending his life in prison. And he confessed, and that led to the exoneration. If this man had been hit by a truck or hadn't found religion, uh, Scott Hornoff uh, would still be in prison. Um, we're going to take a quick break now, uh, but much more on wrongful convictions and the New England Innocence Project with Professor Stanley Fisher of the Boston University School of Law when we return. We'll be right back. Located in Boston and steeped in 138 years of rich tradition, BU Law is number one in teaching quality according to lighter law school rankings and number three in the nation for best professors according to Princeton Review. BU Law, 
Admitting students, regardless of race, religion, or gender since 1872, and training them to become leaders in the law. Visit the website and see for yourself at www.bu.edu forward slash law. Now back to the BU Law Podcast with host Dan Ray, a lawyer, a veteran Boston broadcast journalist, and BU Law alum. And welcome back to the BU Law School Podcast. My name is Dan Ray. I'm your host today. My guest is Professor Stanley Z. Fisher. He's professor of law at the Boston University School of Law, and he's also a founding member and, more importantly, a trustee of the New England Innocence Project. Uh, Professor Fisher has taught for decades at uh, Boston University Law School, and one of the reasons that BU is such a great law school and has such a distinguished faculty, he's been on the the faculty now for 42 years. Um, Professor Fisher, I understand that in many cases reversed with, that, that in many cases reversed with DNA proof, the accused, believe it or not, uh, has made a confession, turns out to be a false confession or a guilty plea. And a lot of people in the public would say, well, if he didn't do the crime, never should have confessed, never should have pled guilty. How do you account, f- to, how do you explain that uh, to people in, in the lay community? Yeah, well, you know, a, a case that many people have heard of is the New York jogging case, where I think the police got five confessions from uh, young black males uh, who confessed to raping this and beating this jogger. It later turned out with DNA evidence that it was another person who acted independently. And these kids had absolutely nothing to do with attacking this woman. Um, the, the reason they falsely confessed is because uh, they were persuaded by police through police interrogation methods, uh, subtle threats, promises of leniency. You know, your friend is saying you did it. You better tell the truth. If you say he did it, uh, you know, we we'll, we'll, won't charge you. And they ended up all confessing. Um, and some of them served time in prison. Uh, so it may be the police interrogation techniques are coercive or deceptive, and our Supreme Court allows that. Um, uh, the reason why people plead guilty is, is that I'm sure you know we have a plea bargaining system uh, in this country, and people, uh, most people who are in prison and who are convicted have not, never had a trial. They pleaded guilty, and they plead guilty because they're going to be treated more leniently than if they go to trial and are found guilty. So if, if there's a police officer or an eyewitness who even wrongly says, you know, that's the one who did it, I'm going to testify to that, they may be well advised in their own interest to plead guilty to something they didn't do uh, and get a lesser sentence than go to trial, try to show their innocence, fail, and get a much longer sentence. And of course, there's another subset of cases where you have, you know, jailhouse snitches, uh, or as I mentioned in the Salvati case, a federal informant uh, put on the witness stand by the FBI. Uh, an, another whole cadre of cases, if you will. And I assume that you also have some cases where, as much as we, we hate to admit it, that some bad lawyering might be involved. Well, yeah, I mean, both of these are, are very serious problems. Um, uh, they arise, you know, the, 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 the cases of the jailhouse snitch and uh, perjuring informants arise in large part because, and this is a general problem in police investigation, uh, because uh, there is an adequate documentation by the police 
which is then turned over to the prosecution and should be turned over to the defense uh, in advance of trial to show just what the conversations were, what the promises that were made, what the incentives were for this jailhouse informant, why would he perjure himself, what is he expecting to get out of it. Um, and so there really is no proper regulation and control of everything that happens until the point when the person, you know, makes this incriminating statement. Uh, it's the same with uh, police interrogation and confessions. Uh, one of the reforms that we need is for the police to videotape or otherwise electronically record the whole interrogation, not just the confession. So later we can see why did this person confess, what were the uh, methods that were used. Um, in terms of bad lawyering, we know uh, we have cases where people have been put on death row and executed whose lawyers were sleeping during the trial. Uh, there is a constitutional right to counsel, but the standard for what constitutes effective assistance of counsel is very, very low, uh, and the courts are very reluctant to second-guess a lawyer who does very little on the case, and their view sort of is, well, this may be, you know, criminal defense is uh, an art. It's not a science. He may have a good reason why he didn't call a witness. He may have a good reason why he didn't investigate, why he didn't make this argument. So basically, between low constitutional standards and a failure to fund adequately uh, uh, defense attorneys for the vast majority of defendants who are indigent and can't pay their own, uh, these people can't do a good job if they have too many cases, if they don't have funds, adequate funds to hire expert witnesses uh, and advisors to do testing, to do investigation. So it should be no surprise that we have some, some fine defense lawyers, but we also have some who do a substandard job, and that often contributes, unfortunately, to uh, conviction of innocent people. Now, I know that, as, as we talked earlier, law students may be able to get in touch with an Innocence Project uh, uh, at their law school or, or in their city. Um, and But before we, um, we wrap up our conversation today, uh, I'm wondering if you could uh, provide some information where listeners might be able to go, uh, lawyers and non-lawyers, uh, and, and get some more information on some of the work that you have done and some of the work uh, that uh, has been done through Boston University. Well, the, the, the work that I have done is listed on the Boston University Law School website if one just looks up faculty and faculty profiles and publications. Um, most of my publications are listed there. And, of course, there's a host of uh, a wealth of information on wrongful convictions on websites like the New York uh, Innocence Project in New York and uh, the New England Innocence Project. So there's a great deal of information out there now. Well, Professor Fisher, I'd like to really thank you for the amount of time and the thoroughness of your answers today. I want to, uh, again, uh, suggest to anyone uh, that if they're looking for information uh, on wrongful uh, imprisonment uh, in innocent cases, uh, a wealth of information is available uh, through your great work. I just want to thank you again for joining us uh, today uh, and look forward to seeing you around the campus uh, at some uh, 
hopefully near date in the in the very a date in the very near future. And I also want to thank all of our listeners. You can find all of the editions uh, of the Boston University Law School podcast uh, on the Legal Talk Network and also on the Boston University Law website, as well as they're available at iTunes. Uh, until we uh, next meet and to discuss another uh, set of legal issues, I want to wish uh, all of you on behalf of Professor Stanley Fisher and myself, everyone here at Legal Talk Network, uh, have a great day. Um, good afternoon everyone. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the BU Law Podcast with host Dan Ray. Check out what else is happening on campus at bu.edu forward slash law.